Several years ago, I was on an airplane, and the gentleman I was sitting next to, we started uh, talking a little bit uh, before takeoff and then in, in the air. Uh, and then came the question that almost all clergy dread on an airplane. <laughs> what do you do? Uh, I, I'm very proud to be a priest, but it doesn't mean I want to talk about it for five hours. So I, I gave my initial answer, which was I work at a church. Um, oh. The guy informed me that he was a Christian and asked, what do you do at a church? <laughs> and I said, I'm an Episcopal priest. He goes, oh, that's great. Well, let me ask you a question. <laughs> yeah. When you die and you stand before the judgment seat of Christ, what are you going to say? And I said, first, I know there's a lot of scriptural warrant for the notion that each of us stands before the judgment seat of Christ. But I'm not sure that's how it works. Because I think there's also a lot of scriptural warrant for the notion that our salvations are tied together. And that it's not actually purely individual. And I actually think the, the reading from 2 Timothy today, where Paul says... You know, I was deserted. Don't let it be counted against them. Or I will receive the crown of righteousness, as will all those who have been expecting or hoping for his appearing. Right? That's not all just, I'm in, too bad for you. But that we're all tied together. He's like, uh, okay. Obviously, we were from different theological traditions. Um, and he said, but supposing... <laughs> you are before the judgment seat of Christ, what are you going to say? So I started recounting ways I thought I had been faithful and lived uh, a Christian life and had strived to serve God and been a, a servant of justice and mercy uh, in the world. Not, not a lot like, you know, I'm better than anybody, but just, you know, why I thought I should get past the judgment seat. And I said, well, okay, my turn. What are you going to say? And he said, I'm going to say, God have mercy on me, a sinner. And suddenly I felt a lot like the Pharisee. <laughs> in this parable sitting with the tax collector who had just schooled me the professional religious person in faith and belief I'm really grateful that I had that experience I got a lot out of that some context is helpful the Pharisees as you may know were particularly observant Jews, also sort of professional Jews in a way, who um, were very observant of the law. And in fact, 
Part of the word Pharisee means separated one. So they were the ones who were separated, set apart to be particularly observant of the law and to follow the law rigorously to uphold the faith. This Pharisee is actually telling God in the midst of, thank God I'm not like other people, he's actually telling God how he does even more than is expected of a Pharisee because he fasts even more frequently than the law would ask him to fast. And he ties on all of his income, so he gives even more. So he's basically saying, like, I'm a super Pharisee. So I'm not even just a Pharisee, I'm like a super Pharisee, and thank God I'm, you know, I'm so great, and I'm not like this tax collector and these rogues and thieves. Now, we hear Jesus talk about sinners and tax collectors a lot, right? He hangs out with them quite a bit. Tax collectors were reviled. The tax collector is also a Jew. But tax collectors were viewed as being uh, collaborators, being complicit with the Roman occupation, right? They were Jews who collected money from other Jews for the Roman Empire. And it was a tricky situation because most of their income depended on bribes, extortion, or kind of padding the tax bill. Right? So they are not viewed well. And I sometimes wonder if uh, the reason Jesus hung out with them a lot is because he also had a sense that um, they were trapped to a degree in an oppressive system. Right? Like they didn't, they weren't viewed well by the other Jews, but maybe the tax collectors also felt like I'm stuck. So that's the context, right? The reviled tax collector who's a Jew and the super Pharisee. Karl Barth, who was a highly regarded Swiss Calvinist theologian, so a very different theological tradition than the Episcopal Anglican tradition, but nonetheless incredibly influential on Christianity and Christian thinking. He said that the chief sin of religious people was pride. The chief sin of religious people was pride. And that is what we see in the Pharisee, right? We see his pride at all he does and all he is. And Karl Barth said that pride for a religious person, for a Christian, is a form of idolatry. It's a sense of you have created all that you are. It's confusing yourself with what you have been given by God. And for Karl Barth, the fundamental issue with sin was not seeing our need for God. 
not seeing our dependence on God. The Pharisee is thanking God that he's not like other people. But then he goes on to boast about all that he is and does. And there is nothing in his prayer that acknowledges his need for God. But the tax collector, the reviled one, that's all his prayer is. Have mercy on me, a sinner. Have mercy on me. In our uh, dinner, monthly dinner church program for the fall, we're focusing on forgiveness. And uh, I was reading a commentary on this passage the other day, and maybe we should spend some time on this passage because it was talking about, um, so we're focusing on forgiveness, and it was talking about the theme of forgiveness in this reading. And so the part of what we learn from this reading is that a basic human and spiritual need is for forgiveness. We have a basic spiritual need for forgiveness. When I was in seminary, uh, I spent a lot of time studying um, Eastern Orthodoxy, in part because my mother's whole side of the family uh, came from Greece and were Greek Orthodox in background, so I got very interested in that. And I spent a bunch of time studying the Jesus Prayer. One of the traditional formulations of the Jesus Prayer is, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Sound a little familiar from our gospel reading today? These things come from Scripture, are formed by the faith uh, tradition. And I started using this in my own spiritual life. And I, I feel really blessed that um, I got to travel to Greece and to um, Turkey, uh, where the Greek Orthodox Patriarchate is, and, and talk to monks in Russia and learn about the Jesus prayer. A monk even gave me his little prayer rope to kind of work the Jesus prayer. Lord Jesus, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And what I found in that prayer was how incredibly liberating it was to call myself a sinner. I found it incredibly freeing and liberating to say that I was a sinner. And it's hard for us, right? Like, we have a lot of baggage about that word. And it comes from the church, right? Because I think so many of us were socialized in religion, in our faith life, that sin was like violating the church, violating the morals or the teachings of the church. And that if you were a sinner, you're just a bad person. But that's not the case at all. The whole point is we're all sinners. We're all in need of God's mercy. And in a world that is so, and society that is so driven by achievement and a sense of merit that we have created and deserve what we have, to simply acknowledge 
that I fall short and that I'm a sinner was incredibly freeing for me spiritually. It really was powerful. And I, I actually think we hear an echo of this in the Second Timothy lesson. So, Second Timothy, maybe written by Paul, maybe not, probably not, but it's presented as Paul at the end of his life in prison, probably in Rome. He knows he's about to be executed. Uh, sometimes crown of righteousness is a euphemism for martyrdom. And he is writing a letter of advice to Timothy, a young minister, about what Timothy will have to face and how to lead. And if you really read through the passage, Paul's saying, like, you don't have to be better than anybody. You have to fight the good fight. You have to run the race and try and finish it. You have to try to keep the faith. You don't have to be better than anyone. You just have to strive to do your best. But you do have to fight the fight. You do have to run the race and try to finish it. You do have to try to keep the faith. But that's not based on being better than other people. It's based on being faithful to God. He even says, right, like, I was abandoned by everyone, but God stood by me, and I got strength from God. It wasn't his strength. He got strength from God. Jesus says that those who exalt themselves will be humbled, right? So the Pharisee who's exalting himself, who's prideful, will be humbled. And the tax collector who is humbling himself, who knows he is sinning against his own people, will be exalted. And that Jesus' prayer becomes a way of humbling ourselves before God. I remember hearing someone say that one thing that the Episcopal Church does not do well is teach prayer. That it doesn't teach prayer very well. I felt a little convicted by that. Uh, so, I guess let's try some prayer. Sound good? So, I want you to just assume whatever position of your body you would use for prayer. Close your eyes if you want. Keep them open if you want. Sit if you want to stand, because that works for you. And part of what I love about this formulation of the Jesus prayer is that it's, it's got two sets of six words. So for me, I like to match it with my breath. Some people just like to do Jesus mercy. But let's try it. Breathing in, you can say it aloud, silently. Most people just say it in their mind. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God. And then breathing out. Have mercy on me, a sinner. Breathing in, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God. Breathing out, have mercy on me, a sinner. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Now try it on your own. <laughs> 